Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 326, recorded August 23rd, 2020. Today we are doing Star Trek New Visions, the photo novels by John Byrne, issues number 12 and 13. Yeah, pretty good. You know, some of Byrne's, some are better than others. I, I kind of like the first one. I definitely like the first one better than the second one. And they're both, they're just really long. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, they're like a like a whole episode of a show. Yeah. <laughs> now, mind you, that's great. That we're getting that much value. I mean, they certainly don't they don't skimp on the story, right? But it just yeah, especially when you're doing a synopsis for these things, <laughs> it's really difficult because there's a lot going on. Um, long stories. That's true. But as always, the visuals are fantastic. It really looks like. I mean, for the most part, yeah, it looks like. This is from an episode of the show. Right. Uh, every once in a while, some of the special effects or the um, special guest stars look a little off. Yeah. Generally, all the things that he can use footage from the original show always looks really good. And it looks pretty seamless. Great. But I agree. Some of the things with photos of people that obviously didn't come from the show. Or he tries to make them look a little different. Uh, but it actually is... Uh, uh, something captured from the original show. Um, it's a little off. And then when they have spaceships. Right, right. So spaceships, burn, probably figures. I'm never going to be able to make this look really great, so I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time rendering the spaceship of the week. And the reason why is because that's the same mentality the show had. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to make it look good, so why try? Well, okay, it... Yeah. What do you mean? Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you didn't like the Doomsday Machine? The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> with that, the, the corn snack? The bugle. The, the bugle. The bugle, bugle look? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it was awesome. <laughs> they put a lot of money into that. And then the, uh, the Constitution or Constellation, well, whatever the other Starship yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Right. They just used an AMT modeled kit and then, you know, just. You know, used a bic to kind of melt some parts of it. <laughs> I mean, that was it. <laughs> so, right. yeah, they—they. They, I, I, I was just taking a dig at the, uh, the the old show. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. They they, you know, they they didn't have that much technology, and they had a limited budget, which yeah. in the end ended up ruining Desilu Studios anyway. So. Oh, did it? Is this is this why it went under? Ah, uh, it... yeah. So basically, Desilu Studios put so much money. Into the show, which, but you know, still, it's you know, in many aspects of it's pretty cheap, but it's an expensive show to make, especially back in the '60s. Yeah, finally, they had to sell out to uh, CBS uh, or Paramount, whatever, whatever they were back then. I guess they were probably CBS. Right. I mean, they, she. Well, no, they were on NBC, so I doubt it was it. No, CBS. It was produced by CBS, uh, although it it played on NBC. Huh. Oh, anyway, okay. so whatever. 
I mean, the main point is Desilu Studios ran out of money, and basically, and and, and Lucy herself was involved in Star Trek. And in the end, she basically ran out of money and had to sell the rights and everything to CBS. And the rest is history. It's been a cash cow for CBS ever since, uh, and and Paramount. Uh, but if she could have held on longer, Desilu Studios would have still owned the rights to Star Trek. But she ran out of money, and the rest is history. Oh, that's too bad. Yes, it is too bad. So does CBS also own, like, Green Acres and all the other ones that uh, Desilu did? I don't know. But since we've never seen a, and I don't know why, a Green Acres movie, Green Acres the movie. (laughs) I don't don't know. Maybe not. We saw a Beverly Hillbillies movie. Uh, That's true. That's true. All right. You ready to talk about the actual issues? Let's do it. Okay, so I'm doing the first one. It's called The Swarm, and this is New Vision's um, issue number 12. September 2016. His published date, Photomontage by John Byrne. Edited by Chris Rael. Published by Ted Adams. The cover features the Enterprise heading towards The Swarm, which is basically just a bunch of like rusty red colored kind of weird-looking ships. I think it was compared to some kind of a, a sea crustacean, but I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think it looks that much like like a crab or whatever. Horseshoe crab, that's it. Horseshoe crab. But there's a ton of them. I mean, the, 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 the cover is covered with these things. I mean, there's probably at least 35 of them showing on the cover. So definitely the Enterprise is heading into trouble as they head into the swarm. Okay. So that's the cover. Of course, there's only one. The Enterprise is warping to Copernicus 7 to answer what appears to be a call for help from that populated world. Ohura speculates the kind of signal interference could be caused by a supernova. Spock states the fast-dropping energy levels in the Copernican star system is inconsistent with exploding stars, silly Ohura. They come out of warp to see the spectacle of what appears to be the Copernican star exploding. McCoy prods Spock as to why Uhura knew it was a supernova before he did. Spock's analysis of fresh sensor readings spots the presence of chronometric particles. Spock says it indicates an artificial alteration of time. The rapidly dropping energy emissions curve indicates time tampering caused the Copernican star to age 60 million times faster than normal. Kirk gives the order to move in closer when Spock indicates the rapidly dropping energy levels indicate doing so is not a danger to the ship. As Sulu moves the ship into a course around the exploding star's perimeter, the deflectors automatically snap on and just in time as the ship is hit with a shock wave. After a second impact, shields drop. Kirk orders Sulu to get them out of there. Scotty explains the shields went down so fast because they were hit by more of an energy wake than a shock wave. I'm really not sure what the difference is. Spock confirms the wake was from an immensely powerful propulsive system around either one huge ship or thousands of smaller ones. The ship is hit again, and this time the impact cuts ship's power. After a few minutes, Scotty and his team... Working miracles are able to get the power back and start rebuilding 
shield strength. Spock reports sensors picked up something big heading away from the Copernican star system. Kirk orders it put up on the view screen. After significant magnification, they see it's a swarm of rust-colored objects. Spock reports there are 927,608 of them, and their numbers are increasing. They isolate one of the objects and see what looks like a gigantic horseshoe crab, but Spock reports the object is not organic. Their sizes vary, but on average they are around 25 meters in length. The ship is hit again by another wake, and Spock is sent flying into an instrument panel and hits his head. Spock is out like a light, and McCoy takes him to sick bay. Kirk orders Chekhov to man Spock's science station. Kirk orders Sulu to get them to maximum sensor range distance. After they are there, Sulu reports the swarm is on a trajectory for the next closest star system. Chekhov reports the swarm grew in size by 25% and its energy output dropped by 50%. Kirk theorizes reproduction takes plenty of their energy. Kirk goes to sickbay to check on Spock. When he gets there, McCoy tells him Spock is unconscious and likely his body is trying to repair itself. There is nothing Kirk can do, so he leaves for the bridge. Meanwhile, on the bridge, Sula reports some of the swarm detected them and turned to face the Enterprise. They are firing some kind of ionic pulse weapon. The shields are holding, but draining significant ship's power. Phasers have no effect on their thickly armored shells. Scotty observes whatever they are using to blow up the stars are conventional weapons since the shields are standing up to their attacks well. Kirk says he wants a way to stop the swarm before it reaches the next system. Meanwhile, Spock wakes up and wants to go to the bridge, but McCoy hypos him for his own good. On the bridge, Sulu reports they stopped firing. Scotty reports that there are failures occurring all over the ship, as if critical parts have worn out all over the ship. Chekhov reports chronometric particles are hitting the Enterprise. Kirk orders Sulu to get them away from the swarm. Any direction. One of the nacelles fails and must be shut down. Sulu reports that with only one nacelle, they cannot stay ahead of the pursuing swarm. Another 500 of them break off to pursue the Enterprise. Meanwhile, in sickbay, Spock wakes up in a semi-conscious state, tells McCoy the swarm has a weakness, and convinces McCoy to look at scan regions 8, 16, and 25. Spock falls back asleep, but McCoy appears to have seen what Spock wanted him to. On the bridge, Sula reports the ship is surrounded. Scotty confirms that shields are holding up, and will stay that way until the ship runs out of power. McCoy enters the bridge and tells the captain and Scotty what he and Spock found. Scotty understands immediately and instructs Sulu to fire a spread of photon torpedoes, targeting the swarm ship's backside. Sure enough, the swarm ships evolved to take the heat and radiation of supernovas head-on, but their backsides are not as well protected. Each photon torpedo takes out a swarm ship. The rest get the hint that they can be hurt and withdraw. Spock returns to the bridge and convinces Kirk he is fit for duty over McCoy's objections. Spock talks Kirk into bringing one of the damn swarm ships 
aboard for study. Spock, Scotty, and McCoy conduct the study in the shuttle hangar. McCoy thinks some of, the, some of his medical tricorder readings indicate the swarm could be alive. Spock attempts to mind-meld with it. The ship arrives at the next star system and see the swarm spread out and encircle the star. Strange vibrations emanate from the swarm. Kirk receives word that Spock is down after his mind-meld, spouting something about mechanical telepathy. Sulu states the swarm has a star ready to blow, and they are in the blast zone. Kirk orders best speed away from the star, but all they can manage is warp two in their now elderly ship. Scotty returns to engineering to coax as much out of the nacelles as he can. They barely make it as the star starts to go supernova. The swarm feeds. Remembering what Spock said, Kirk has Ohura look for any kind of EM emissions from the swarm that could function as some kind of communication. The swarm is on the move again, this time to Beta Reticuli star system that has two inhabited planets with combined populations of over two billion. Kirk knows he has to stop the swarm, but needs to know a a way to do it. Ohura states... She picked up a low-frequency hum outside of normal Federation channels originating from the swarm. Kirk asks Ahura if she can jam the frequency, potentially cutting the swarm members off from each other. She says maybe, and McCoy objects, given his theory that the swarm may be made up of over a million sentient creatures. Kirk gives McCoy 40 minutes to see if he can prove their sentience, since they will arrive at the inhabited system in 47 minutes. 20 minutes into his task, he tells Chapel this is not enough time. Spock agrees that even a lifetime would be insufficient. 17 minutes later, Spock and McCoy are on the bridge. Spock confirms Uhura's calculations for jamming the swarm are sound. Get it? They enter the swarm due to the relatively short range of the jamming device. McCoy asks Spock if he can let this happen, given what he knows about the swarm. Spock says he would like to hear of an alternative solution if McCoy has one. He does not. And they activate the jam, which elicits a loud sound from the swarm. Though exactly how they can hear that through the vacuum of space is unclear. Spock explains the individuals in the swarm are screaming. For the first time in their existence, they are cut off from each other and adrift with no purpose. Spock reports, with no propulsion, they will all be drawn into the nearby star and burn up. Spock says the swarm was neither machine nor animal. They were both, but not intelligent. They operate on pure instinct. Kirk observes that given how dangerous they were to sentient life, destroying them was hardly a crime against nature. McCoy is not satisfied with their rationalizations. He wonders whether someone would have said the same thing about the human race a million years ago. The end. So what happened? What happens to them now? What, the swarm? Yeah. They're all going to die. They're going to get burned up in the star. Like ants. Like ants. Yes. Like, like or be, be like ants. Like ants swept around away in a storm, uh, a flood, 
you know, whatever. Yep, right. they're all going to die. All of them. Hmm. Well, they, they were kind of a nuisance. Well, yeah, but apparently, unlike the Doomsday Machine, which this story seems to ape quite a bit... Okay, so this is going to get into a long conversation of what these things really were. But unlike the Doomsday Machine, which, which obviously was artificial, it was made to destroy life and property and whatever, and, and it fed on planets. So it didn't feed on star systems or stars. It fed mm-hmm. on planets. You know, that was obviously an artificial thing. No problem with destroying that. But this thing, this swarm, I mean... They're almost insinuating that, what, are, are they natural? I mean, uh, how does a natural thing evolve that's part mechanical? I don't know. They, they don't explain I don't know. it. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Did they actually say it's part mechanical? I think they did. Yeah. Yeah, well, they always say the same thing about the uh, the xenomorph alien from Aliens. Uh, because in oh. the first movie, it's it's very biomechanical. It it has, you know, what looks like, you know, tubing and mechanical parts in it. Does it? Yeah. So therefore, the long time they would always say that it was biomechanical and that it was, um, you know, a created thing. But huh? but all the sequels after that uh, kind of moved away from that, and and instead they just evolved that way. Yeah, but ultimately, if you believe... Well, David created them, right? Uh, well, yeah. That's what... Or that, what not even go there. Was that Covenant? Alien Covenant? That was uh, Alien Covenant, yeah. So... Which I, doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, doesn't make sense, because there's pictures of aliens on the wall in, the, in Prometheus. So yeah. there's no way he could have created that in the past. Plus, Alien vs. Predators in the past, and they were there then. Yeah. Yeah. But people don't, you know, they Ridley Scott didn't like Predator Two and Alien vs Predator, so uh, <laughs> went and <laughs> exactly. Uh, the Anyways. reboots, the reboots are plenty out there. Anyway, so yeah, so what, what's the deal? What are these things? I don't know. I I, I kept thinking of them as like bees or ants. I mean, mm-hmm. and yeah, bees and ants are intelligent, right? I mean, they do show. I mean, they're not sentient. No, but they are intelligent. They're not self aware. Yeah. That. You know what? What do you mean by self-aware? That that you know that you're a person, or that you know that you exist. I don't know. When something tries to move away from pain, that doesn't mean that they I mean they know they exist. They don't want to get hurt, so they. Well, that's isn't that instinct? I mean, they feel pain, and their instinct is to move is to stop the pain. If stopping the pain means moving away, right? Um. I don't know. I always had a problem with the whole sentient thing because. Well, do you do you think? Well, do you think your dog's self-aware? Yeah. Okay. He knows, he knows what's up. <laughs> you have you have had more intelligent dogs than I have. Uh, okay. I mean, he knows his name, so therefore he <laughs> knows that he is something. <laughs> Good point. Good. Well, you really don't know what a dog thinks. Well, whatever. Right. No, you don't know. Anyway, that, no. That's just it. So anything that can't communicate with you, we just assume. Good point. Uh, Good point. Is is dumb. <laughs> well, it's it's but all anyways. it's all on a continuum, isn't it? I mean, obviously, I, I I was in a situation where we were on a lake in like like a boat kind of thing. 
and one of the kids it was it was a Cub Scout thing. One of the kids had had dropped their their flip flop in the water, and it was like oh, it was like kind of far away from us and stuff. It's like we were like man, and I said, "Hey Sam, you see that?" Sam the dog, he's a beagle, lemon lemon beagle, and I said, "Sam, you see that? Go get that, go get that." And uh, so he goes off and he does it. He actually he actually got it. So we figured that out. Had he had he done that before? Was he Never. was he a kind of dog that fetched stuff? No. Well, I mean, it's a beagle, so it's like a hunting dog uh, lineage, although more like fox. Those, those annoying barking dogs. And and I played fetch with him all the time. I mean, you know, he mm. loved it. You know, we used to throw tennis balls, and he'd just go go ape after those things. So uh, anyway, so but he had never done that before. I mean, he swims, but I mean, did you did you see that little floating? Uh, flop. Apparently, he did, and he understood. Go get it, and he went and did it, and he brought it back. It's like, oh, Sam, I'm so proud of you. Anyway, <laughs> it makes up. It makes up for all those times that you pooped and peed in the house. <laughs> well, not. Really. But anyway, so, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you should feel that bad if you by killing these uh, these. This infest, infestation, mm-hmm. because it was going to kill billion people, and then yep. who knows how many people were going to live on the next solar system and destroyed. So you can't feel too bad for the swarm, you know, kill, killing the killer bees, or killing the ants, or killing the whatever that's the that's red hurting, ants are hurting you. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm I'm more towards the Kirk end of things, which like it's like Kirk's on one end. Spock's in the middle, and then McCoy's on the other end of the continuum. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of more like like Kirk. Yeah, what the hell? Couldn't let those people die. So whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm. I'm thinking. I think we're on the same page. I think so too. I mean, so let's say they were Klingons. If they were like a swarm of Klingons that yeah. were like, we're going to destroy this uh, star, they would have killed them. Sure. And wouldn't have even thought anything of it and have a whole conversation with him about it. Hey, I'm going to kill you. Well, and, and Kirk would have tried a, a great speech. Sure, sure. But let's say which would have work. failed. Which would have failed. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm just saying, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have, I mean, you wouldn't have felt bad for killing a ship that was going to destroy Star. No, no. So I mean, why we. Why feel bad we destroy with killing ships. an insect or something that was sure. also trying to kill Star. Exactly. You just didn't have that dialogue. <laughs> Maybe that's why, uh, you know. Oh, no, Kirk yeah, and you couldn't okay have the dialogue. Right. I mean, there's no way to. I mean, unless you could decode the the the, the signal that right, the signal that Ohura picked up, which was really unlikely in a short amount of time. Right. So. Yeah. Anyway. So I kind of I kind of took the whole signal as being like the pheromones that bees have and stuff like that, where they can communicate. Yeah. There you go. Like there a, you go. And stuff like that. So. Right. It it probably is at a. Yeah, it's probably at a more instinctual kind of communication level as opposed to, hey, guys, you feel like paying poker this Tuesday? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So uh, as far as visuals go, uh, I did not care for the crab thing. I mean, <laughs> I was you that, uh, you know, it was it was probably a, a, a scanned uh, ship of some short sort that he made. Um, I mean, it kind of fit in that it, it looked, it looked fake, like a lot of the stuff in Star Trek looked fake, but I, I just, there was times when it just didn't have any detail in it at all. Right. That kind of bothered me. Yeah, it was low res. 
It was, you know, I don't know. I, I'm you're more of a Photoshop than I, guy than I am, but you know, it looks like some computer generated model that he did, that he could turn on any angle, and he just didn't, you know, put a, a huge amount of time into, uh, or or maybe that's just the style he likes to create. Right. Yeah, I kind of. It's completely style. If it's style wise, I kind of. I mean, I liked it because to me, it kind of fit. The old show, and especially with like the, the the special edition versions of the old show, yeah, where they've gone in and oh, and fixed the uh, and fixed the, uh, redid the, the special effects where yeah. the ships now look really cool, but then they fly across like you know really cheesy people, <laughs> you know it's like you know the camera quality was not that great, so it's like you see Kirk there, but then you see this high def show, you know shuttle flying out in the next shot, you know it, it's a little jarring watching those those remastered well okay so the remastered the remastered ones they upgraded the planets they upgraded the enterprise they upgraded the matte paintings in the background oh did they upgrade the matte paintings okay okay because they because they used to use matte paintings a lot on on planets and things right for the establishing shots and things like that right exactly okay yeah that, that too then i guess but what what do you mean i thought they upgraded most of the special effects. So yeah, that's what, what I'm saying. You... They upgraded the special effects, but Kirk and Sulu and everybody still look like '60s era film quality. So it's like oh, they're well, I... standing next to something that looks like higher def than they are. Oh, mm, interesting. Well, it was all came from film, so sure. it wasn't like it was a videotape or something like that. So. Yeah, I don't know, but but actually, you're you're mentioning something that I wanted to mention in the fact that, and this is this is not unusual. I don't know if I may be repeating myself. In fact, but every time you see the Enterprise, the Enterprise looks really good. Yep. And so, and and I li- I love the the Bussard collectors effect. You know, the front of the nacelles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that looks good. Everything looks really good. So, you know, when he takes his stuff, he's taking it from the remastered footage. Not the original, thank God. <laughs> right, and like when it's shooting the the photon torpedoes out, I thought that looked really good. Like yeah. the lighting from the underneath the hole and right. stuff, I mean, it looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So he, <coughs> sorry, he's using the good stuff. Sure, sure. So the good and, footage, and then the stuff that he did do, like the explosions and things like that, and the supernovas and stuff. Man, they look great. It's just the the alien ship I wasn't the biggest fan of. No, especially at, at the bottom of page nine, where you get a good, your first good look at it. It's like, what the heck is that? <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably the best picture of it. Yeah, that, in the whole book, I think so. There's another good one where it's in the in the hangar bay and they're walking towards it, but that's like a front view. Mm-hmm. And it look it it it, it look the shape is kind of cool, but oh my god, it's just just so simplistic. Right, uh, it looks so smooth. It, it yeah, it just looks it looks out of place. Right, but and then and then when they walk up next to it, it's just like this red blur blur behind them. Right, it's like a Macy's Day Parade or something, a float <laughs> or something. Anyway. But, uh, but anyways, I had a problem with the the number of ships. So Spock rattles off this long, long number after Kirk says, you know, there must be hundreds of thousands. And then Kirk Spock's like, oh, no. And then he rattles off this long number. 957,000 yeah. or whatever. Right. But then he finishes it and more. You know, yeah. it's just like, well, then why? 
<laughs> Might oh. just say yes and more. You're right, Kirk. There is hundreds of thousands and more. Well, because because Spock is a Mister Know It All. Yeah, but by the time he rattled off that number, that number wasn't valid anymore. It yeah. had already increased. Exactly. So why? 100. So why bother giving that precision? Exactly. Because me, I'm that, a Vulcan. <laughs> that sentence made no sense to me. Oh, well. I mean, because they're talking about how fast they're replicating, and then by the time he finished that sentence, he already acknowledges that his number was not right. But, well, no, it was right at the time that he took his original reading. So right. that is uh, the precise number when I took the reading, and oh, by the way, subsequent readings show there's even more. So right. he's he's doing his, his computer-like Spock precision... And just go and swish. I did it again. I'm so good. Uh, anyways, I don't know when Data and when he and Data do that. It, it, I get it. It annoys you, but it kind of annoys me. There you go. Well, just there... because, especially if it's a number that's increasing like fast, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what did what did Sulu say or Chekhov? He says like. 25% they've increased in 25% in, in volume so or the num- their number so what that's 1. 1. 1.2 million or something wow that's a lot yeah so how are they are how are they replicating well okay so you want to talk about how how amazing these things are for I some do. for something that isn't intelligent and doesn't right. seem to have any science shall we bullet point it okay yeah, so here's where the, the first one uh, okay, reproduction. So how can it reproduce? Well, Byrne offers an explanation. Not well, unlike, I mean, they actually, I think they actually say, not unlike uh, a replicator process. So they basically has, have transporter-based replication abilities, which, by the way, original Taws didn't, I don't think they ever had replicators. Oh, yeah, no, they didn't have replicators. I mean, that was a TNG thing, wasn't it? Right. Anyway, there's no Earl Grey hot going on unless somebody actually, you know, produced it. But, well, I don't know if that's 100%. Well, in the food, at the at the cafe, they had, like, the little food slots that would exactly. give them food. But it was never but implied that it, it was... It was transporter technology. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, so there's an automated process that mixes together some goop that they can make into... Into mashed potatoes and gravy. Here you go. Yeah, I, I and put it on a plate. Like a vending machine. Yeah, exactly. Or like right. one of those. Uh, what are the automats or whatever that they used to have right. back in the day? Right, right, right. There you go. Yeah, that's a good idea, isn't it? Getting a hot dog from a vending machine. Good <laughs> idea. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so that was kind of weird. So these things have transporter technology or something not unlike a replicator process which is transporter based incredibly sophisticated and they can just reproduce themselves that way so okay so they absorb the sun's supernova energy and then uh, transfer that into replicator molecules and thus from, the, yeah, the baby exactly. exactly so from Energy, turning energy into uh, matter of a very specific pattern, which is little baby uh, swarm members. All right, I'll buy that one. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, fine. But how, how, did, how did this thing that is mostly mechanical but still has some kind of life to it 
have the ability to do something that sophisticated? Okay, so that that that's that's well, the first I mean, bullet but, point. I don't know. Then how do any animal know how to have babies? Well, uh, chromosomes, you know, double helixes, all that kind of stuff. But they, mm-hmm. it's a biological process. Right. Same you with know, them. What? Transporter technology? Yeah. <laughs> to, re, to reproduce? I mean, this it's totally not biological. So we, so we have an idea. Well, we have some idea about how reproduction happens on Earth for biological things. Uh, and that's the whole, you know, chromosomes and blah, blah, blah. Sure, sure. Uh, but this is completely technology. I mean, this is completely... A high well, level... they said it was like it. What if they have a biological okay, whatever. equivalent of a replicator? Okay, fine. Uh, uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> okay, so okay, so he, here's the list of. Okay, so Burn, I, I said I thought I said this to you before we started recording, but I think Burn came up with the idea. You know, I'd like to do a doomsday uh, story, but I'd like to do it where they're like more decentralized, a bunch of little guys instead of one big, you know, planet killer. So mm-hmm. okay, fine. So he started with that idea, and then, you know, he just saw where the story took him. And there's places he felt he had to explain some things, which I agree with him. He had to explain some things about how this, this thing's going on. So he came up with explanations, which I guess they're okay. But come on, how can, how can something that supposedly does not have sentient life be able to figure out, number one, the replicator. So this is the second bullet point. It can manipulate time. It can generate... Was it, was it tachyon? No, chronometric. It can generate chronometric particles, which can age a star, which has a, a lifespan of, what, billions of years? Uh, right. Before they ultimately run out of its fuel and go supernova. Um, and actually before all that, it expands greatly also, but whatever it's able to, it's able to impose accelerated time bubbles around a star. That's incredibly sophisticated. (laughs) So how's it doing that? Magic. (laughs) (laughs) Magic. Yes. Right. And the thing is, is that they also, those Particles have to know. I mean, there has to be a setting on those particles too, because when they hit the Enterprise, it doesn't age billions of years. I mean, no. it does age. It ages, but I mean, if it aged billions of years, even the metal and stuff would be gone, right? I mean, so yeah. Or, well, I may, mean, it, yeah. So maybe that's the difference between nine hundred thousand of them shooting their chronometric particles at, at a star, as yeah. opposed to you know ten. You know, ten or, or twenty or whatever number of so they individuals. Have I don't know. Okay, Maybe right. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so it ages the Enterprise. So once it ages the Enterprise, then well, it's aged, right? I mean, Scotty can do a little bit to maybe make things better, but I mean, they seem to get the ship. I mean, they 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 were able to keep their shields up, no problem, and they were finally able to you know get to warp two and stuff. Um, so how how did Scotty fix an old ship that's worn out? Maybe that's why it gets refit and looks completely different in the movies. 
<laughs> maybe. <They're> like, <laughs> maybe. Like, maybe. You went on a five-year mission and you brought back a you know hundred-year-old ship. What the de- what the heck? We're dudes? gonna have to replace everything. <laughs> there you go. Make those nacelles square. Exactly. Square them off. Yeah. All right. What else? What else? Did you have more of your checklist? I, I just have. Well, that was, those are the two main points. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Is, I, I is, are there, there any others? Uh, no, not that I could think of. Okay. Me neither. Yeah. Uh, I I think I just have one more thing to say about it, if I may. Sure. Um. The first time when they talked about Copernicus 7, which is a planet uh-huh. uh, around the Copernican star. Um, the seventh planet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, I thought the original idea was that there was, there was intelligent life on there that was sending a distress signal. Or did, did Ahura just say it seemed like that? Um. Because hmm. when they got to that, when they got to that first star system, it had already exploded. And I think Chekhov or Spock or whoever was saying, oh, the inner planets are gone and only the outer planets uh, are intact and their, their orbits are, are affected. So seven is a pretty high number. So, so I mean, seventh. Uh, what what is the seventh in in our star system? So is that is that like Neptune or something? Uh, I don't know, but whatever. It's pretty out there. Yep. So you would think that Copernicus seven might have survived the explosion, the initial explosion. But were there people on that planet? Um, uh, uh, I'm gonna guess it wasn't a Federation planet. Um, but they didn't do anything to rescue anyone. Uh, they just said, "Hey, what's this? What's this swarm thing? Let's go follow that." <laughs> and it's like, "Well, what about the people on Copernicus Seven? I mean, the originator of the original uh, distress signal that brought you to that star system." Yeah, good point. Anyway, yeah. I just yeah, thought that's that was kind of I odd. I didn't even well, once they weren't talking about the distress call anymore. Right. I totally forgot about it. Yeah, well, I I I pretty much did too, but. I had to I had to synopsize this beast, <laughs> so I was going over it a couple times. Anyway, so, just kind of wondered. I have something. It's kind of an aside. Has nothing to do with the issue, but I, I did think about it a time or two when when you were talking about the squishy science type stuff, where mm-hmm. you just give give you an answer just so that you can get to the next page without having to stop and think about it too hard. Right. Um, have you seen the movie An American Pickle that just recently came out on <laughs> HBO Max? My brother, my brother told me about that, so I do want to see it. So, an immigrant, a Jewish immigrant to America, becomes a pickle king, and somehow he drops into his pickle juice brine, and is preserved until the modern day. Is that is that it? Um, well, the, the guy definitely gets pickled. And comes out a hundred years later. <laughs> but there, there's okay, this. But... It's not much of a spoiler, but there's this one scene where they're at a press conference. Yeah. And he's there, and he's like, you can like hear what he's thinking, and he's like, the number one question everybody asks is, how did it happen? And so the scientists are like, all right, so now we're going to explain how it happened that he was preserved so perfectly. And then <laughs> as they're talking, the their voice kind of draws that, you know, uh, goes really low. And then you hear the, the pickle guy thinking about just random stuff. So you completely, like, don't hear the reason. And then, 
And then when they're finished talking, uh, all the reporters are like, oh, that makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that is the perfect way to, to get around uh, it. not have to explain your, your, your crazy premise. Exactly. That, uh, you just don't. <laughs> Let, let's just get on with the story. But everybody else in the world is going to be okay with it. Yeah, it's like the second Austin Powers movie where he goes back in time, right? Yeah. And then he's talking to the uh, – is it Michael Caine or is it – I guess it's maybe both of them. One. Or I'm not uh, – Michael – who's that? It's not Michael Caine. It's Michael – No, not Mike Myers. It's the guy that plays his – you know, his, his, his number one guy, his, his M – well, whatever. They both look at the camera and they're kind of like saying, you know, oh. you, you shouldn't worry about these details either. Just enjoy the movie. <laughs> you know, a little wink-wink at the audience. Right. Anyway, yeah. That is, whenever you start talking about time travel, it becomes very difficult to explain. So, good idea. Okay, so did you like that movie? Um, It was all right. Yeah, I liked it. It uh, was worth a watch. My, my brother it, liked it, but... It, it's not one that you're going to want to watch over repeatedly. and over again. But is it is it, it funny? Is it supposed to be a comedy to some degree? Yeah, yeah, it's a comedy. Okay. No, it's definitely a comedy. Okay, good. It's just a yeah, the amount of laughs are not huge. Right, yeah. Yeah. But okay. I don't think that they were going for it. That's not they're not going for an Austin Powers type thing. Right. Okay. It just has one really s- silly thing that they have to get over so that they could just have the rest of the movie. Okay. And that cool. and that was it. So. And what's his face played both roles? The Pickle King and the... Um, Seth Rogen, yeah. Yeah, Seth Rogen. And then the modern-day Descendant? Right, right. Okay. Yep. Well, yep, I'd like watch. to watch it. I'll, I'll have to see if I can talk my wife into it. So, we'll see. Yep. It's worth watching. Okay. All right, shall we move on to The Hidden Face? Let's do it. All right, so The Hidden Face. It doesn't have, like, the little thing of credits like the other one did. Uh, the only thing it says here is created by Gene Roddenberry. Photo montage and story by John Byrne. So I'm assuming all the editors and stuff are the same as uh, issue number 12. All right, so the as with most of the new visions, if not all, there's only one cover for a change. So this one shows uh, a reflections of Kirk, Spock, McCoy inside or being reflected off of a shiny gold surface of a mask. And uh, Ken pointed out that it looks like a... Uh, what'd you say it was? Like a... Jason of the Argonauts or something? There's an old movie from, I think, the 70s or or maybe 80s. The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Right. Yeah. It definitely has, like, a Greek look to it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it's just just a mask. All right, so the story starts off on the Enterprise. Um, The crew is picking up sensor readings from a small ship. They swoop in to investigate, and they beam over a small team, and they find a single pilot in a chair wearing a full head golden mask. Scans show that the man is about to die due to being out there all alone all this time. Uh, so even though he's in a weakened state, he still has enough energy to jump up and swing at them with a pipe yelling, get off my ship. The crew have to stun him and they beam him back to the Enterprise. Every time the man gains consciousness, he goes into a hysterical fit and uh, they have to keep uh, hypoing him and putting him back under. McCoy is able to get the mask off, and he they find out that he looks exactly like all other humans and most of the species in the universe. By scanning the nearby systems, the crew pinpoint the planet of his probable origin, and they start heading over there. 
Once they're in orbit, they find it is much like the 20th century Earth, and they watch some television. They are all surprised that no matter what they're watching, whether it be the news or a sporting event or a daytime soap opera, all the people on the planet wear masks just like the one that the pilot was wearing. So speaking of that pilot, uh, when he wakes up without his mask, he totally loses it, screaming, they stole his face. So once they're able to get the mask back on him, he does settle down a little bit and he's a little bit more talkative. He tells them that he was the first of a fleet of missionaries that was going to head out into space, teaching the word of the great teacher. They tell him that his craft is the only one that they could find, and he says that, yes, that's probably because he requested that they cancel all the other launches once he realized how much larger the universe was than his people originally thought. He again goes nuts when Kirk tells him that he'll be home soon. Seeing that the mask is a global cultural taboo, Kirk prints out some cool Dr. Fate-looking masks for the crew that's going to beam down. When they beam down, Kirk explains to the citizens that they come in peace. But the pilot then goes a little crazy, and he says that these people are vile, hideous degenerates. And the guards of the planet then stun the Starfleeters, and everything goes black. Kirk wakes up in his cell, and he sees that their cool Dr. Fate masks have been replaced with the normal gold Greek-looking masks that everybody else wears. He is then separated from the rest of the crew for some separate interrogations. While he's being interrogated, he does not help his case very well. He's, he, you know, he's telling them that they come in peace, that they have a ship of 400-and-something people, but this does not impress anybody, and he is told that he's going to be executed. Meanwhile, Scotty has some clothes that actually match the citizens of the planet made up, including the correct masks, and they beam down looking for the crew. Spock in the cell is able to nerve pinch the guard, and he then he mind controls the waitress that was there to bring them their food to let them out of their cell and take them to the chamber where Kirk is. Once they get there, they cannot open the door, but they can overhear the leader proclaim that Kirk is about to die, and then they hear the sound of phaser fire. Spock was too late. The doors then open, and Kirk and two masked ladies walk out. It seems that they rescued him just in the nick of time. The team then meets up with Scotty's team, and then they go to the woman's headquarters. There they learn that there's quite a few people on the planet that are rebelling and that they are against the old-school teachings that the, uh, they wear masks all the time, and that this is a law that's put into place based on some religious beliefs from somebody that they call the Great Teacher about 2,000 years ago. They do say that it's something to do with the Great Teacher said it was their vanity as to why that they go to war and things like that, and so if they don't have vanity, they won't have war. But anyways, most people don't believe in that 2,000-year-old nonsense. But there are still some others that take it to the even further extreme, and they don't ever remove the mask, not even for hygiene. Or they don't even take it off babies once the babies start outgrowing their newborn masks, leaving these babies to suffer and die slowly. Kirk uses a communicator to contact the Enterprise and learns that the planet has started to attack them with some primitive missiles. The shields are holding, but they cannot 
drop the shields in order to beam the crew up. The rebels then offer to take Kirk and his crew to the military base, but says that it'll be a suicide mission. Kirk says they have to try. En route to the military base, their ship is surrounded, and Kirk is addressing all of the people that are mobbing them. Instead of taking some sort of fighting stance or anything, he removes his mask. Everyone sees this and is acting very disgusted. He then confirms that most people out there don't agree with the mask law, and he tells them all that they should feel free to take it off and feel the fresh air on their faces. Many of the people in the crowd do, and this somehow is going to cause the whole global governments to adopt the new rules to accommodate the changing beliefs of its people. We now flash forward to the end with the uh, typical Kirk McCoy Spock epilogue there on the bridge. McCoy is upset, stating that it'll still be years before the no-mask laws are completely repelled. Spock says that hopefully they will not have to wait as long as Earth did to become a united, non-religious people. The end. Okay, well, masks. I thought it was a bit of an extreme story, and I Mm -hmm. thought the idea that a whole planet's population would fall for this kind of garbage... That you'd have to put uh, masks on the entire population, I thought was exceedingly unlikely. But I guess it's no more unlikely than a people evolving that that are black on one half of their face and white on the other half of their face. So, there you go. All right, so... I, and I find it... I, I find it that it's not that hard to believe because we on the planet Earth all agree that we should wear pants and shirts, right? Very few people walk around without shirts and pants. Well, but there's a function the to planet. that. But there's a function to that. Right. Well, it's to keep you, it's to to keep you, there is no function to this. What, what, yeah, you, think... you, you, you don't want to get sunburned? That's about the only function I could see to wearing a full head mask. Nah. Uh, uh, see, it, I... it, you, you wear pants and a shirt because you don't want to freeze in the winter. Uh-huh. That's a logical uh, thing. That's not true. You're, what? You're, what? you're in your house right now. Are you wearing a pants and shirt? I, but I bet the air conditioning and what? the heater no, but... at nice, cool 70-something degrees. But there's a reason. There's a function to it that put clothing on us originally. I mean, there's a function behind all that. Yes, there's more that came over time that to show your uh, your bare flesh was a bad thing, especially certain parts. Bad things. Breasts. You can't see breasts. Bad thing. Um, but guys can. No problem. Right. So, right. yeah, I agree I agree with that point. But, I mean, it's not quite the same thing. Close. I think it is quite the same thing. Because if you but, think about it, I mean, it's to the it's to the next degree, right? I mean, it's... It, but it is something that... When I was reading this, mm-hmm. I had to read it in, as two different mindsets. One, a pre... COVID-19 mindset and one a post-COVID. So Mm -hmm. with my pre-COVID mind, I was seeing that this as an allegory towards wearing shirts. Let's just say that. Let's say, I feel like you shouldn't have to wear a shirt whether you're man, woman, whatever. You should be able to go around without a shirt on because what's right for one gender should be right for the other. But society says no. And so nobody does it. Mm -hmm. Okay? 
Uh, not everybody would agree to, that you should wear a shirt, but not everybody agrees that you should. I mean, most people might agree that you shouldn't wear a shirt. But regardless, nobody does it, right? Everybody wears it. So that was what I was thinking. I was like, okay, well, if this planet took that to the next degree and now you're covering a face instead of covering your, your body, you know, who who is Kurt to say you shouldn't do that because that's stupid. We don't do that, right? And, and I was really kind of upset about the things that they were saying when they were like, oh, I can't believe they have to wear a mask. Oh, I, I, it was really kind of bothering me because I was like, who are you to judge another culture for what they decide is acceptable attire, right? So, I mean, if you went down to the planet and they were all walking around butt naked, you would probably be upset, right? I mean, unless you're Chewbacca, you're wearing pants, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so who are we to say that, oh, well, you have to wear pants because we wear pants and we don't want to see the dangling bits. But if somebody wears a mask and you don't wear a mask, then you're like, oh, you shouldn't wear a mask because we don't wear a mask. You can't see your face. So I totally get that uh, that a society could come up with this. And I don't think the Federation should come in there and say, oh, no, no, that's that's barbaric. You shouldn't have to wear a mask. So when they were saying that and making fun of them kind of. It was kind of annoying. And then ultimately to find out that, you know, the end of the story is him liberating the people from their masks. Uh, and it, it was also kind of weird that he keeps pointing out the 2000 years. There's the great teacher, which, you know, religious wise, people believe Jesus was around 2000 years ago. And mm -hmm. he also gave, you know, was a great teacher and things like that. So I was getting a lot of like, are you kind of knocking religion, right? That the, the, you know, religious things say that you should eat this or not eat this and things like that. Are, are you saying that 2,000 years later those rules shouldn't apply anymore because you don't want to do it, right? <laughs> so I was getting a lot of, lot of like, allegory-type things to uh, religion and, you know, nudist colonies and things like that. Or at least that's what I was thinking sure, as my sure. pre-COVID mindset. So I'll quit talking now. I mean, do you disagree with anything that I was saying? <laughs> um, I definitely took it differently, mm. which is cool. That's that's fine. This is you know, this is a the, the best thing about art is that people see different things in it, and they're either entertained by it, and they like it, or they don't. And it's completely personal interpretation. Sure. Um, I didn't think of COVID at all. I mean, I didn't think about uh, the COVID. Uh, pandemic at all with this I think when they did mention 2000 years I thought they were more like just trying to trying to like associate uh, with Christ from the standpoint that on our planet it's been about 2000 years I didn't see that as a negative thing I just saw that as a kind of thing like maybe they're just trying to draw a parallel to you know just to make it more acceptable to you or like right. Oh, okay, two thousand years—that kind of makes sense. I mean, that's that's kind of what we have uh, with Christ with uh, Christianity. So I thought from that standpoint, I didn't see this as being negative. Towards... Yeah, but then then they're like saying, "Well, what was right two thousand years ago, not right today." So uh, that's the part I didn't like, or at least that's the part oh. that I thought might have been a dig towards, you know, not only Christianity but also you know other religions, which you know you can't you can't eat a certain thing because that's against your religion, right? But that was a rule 2,000 years ago or longer. You know, that, therefore, us modern folks shouldn't have to follow that. At least that's, you know, wow. I, I was getting that vibe when they were kind of 
when when Kirk was like, oh, you shouldn't have to follow something that was such an old rule, you know, that kind of thing. I was just like, yeah, but, you know, if that's their religious belief, then you shouldn't impose your your thought process onto what they what they believe, you know? Yeah. Okay. Or at least you shouldn't you shouldn't dismiss their belief just because you think that it you know, you think that it's okay to eat that. So you you shouldn't you shouldn't have to wear a mask because I don't think you have to wear a mask, even though as a society, you know, they, they, that's what they thought. As a society, they had no problem with forcing their mores and uh, way of life on Kirk and Company. Right. So, uh, but, but that doesn't would... make that's a, that's a, that does not necessarily make it all right for the uh, Federation folks to do it back at them. So, I, I kind right. of agree with that. Yep. Right. I mean, because if if another humanoid alien came to Earth. Let's say a Vulcan. When that Vulcan walked off the ship mm-hmm. on first contact, okay, and he was butt naked. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't naked. you think? Yeah, I mean, he's everything's hanging out. <laughs> wouldn't you think that you know Cochran would say, "Hey, uh, you want to cover some <laughs> stuff up? <laughs> <laughs> you want to cover that trouser snake there, pal?" Right, right. So I mean, we if you're going to a planet that has a cultural taboo against something mm-hmm. it, i mean it, i think kurt did the right thing by creating a mask of his own not one that would look yeah, exactly trying to blend like in it. yeah one that showed i respect your beliefs i'm mm-hmm. not going to show my face but i'm not going to just ape you and just put on one of your masks right because right. you know it might have other other cultural significance i like that part i thought that yeah, was good i thought that was good um it didn't didn't, didn't work. The, didn't work. But. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's why I'm like getting mixed messages because I mean he did try to follow, you know he did try to honor what they were doing, mm-hmm. but he did also talk bad about it all the time. Like oh these people are so weird they have to wear masks. <laughs> right. I don't know. And like I said, I was reading into you know mask being any of the other things that uh, religions tell you not to do. You know, right. Yep. Yep. So uh, I don't know. Well, that's good. I mean, this this is great. I think to some degree the book is eliciting a conversation, which is a good thing. I mean, the last thing you want to do is produce a book that's so cookie cutter that there's nothing new in it and it's boring. It's just another, you know, we went to a planet and we beamed down and uh, got a little adventure. But in the end, we got back to the ship at the end. So, uh, so that's good. This is good. But then my post COVID nineteen uh, mindset was that it just reminded me of all the the people out there that's that takes the mandate to wear a mask as some sort of offense to them or something like that, and mm. that it's now a political stance. Or I don't know if it still is that much now, but it was there for a while. That you know. If you're if you're wearing a mask, you're against me or something like that, which which is really silly mindset. I don't understand why people were thinking that. Yeah, yeah. Well, some people don't want anybody to tell them to do anything, and if anybody tries to tell them to do anything, they'll automatically rebel. But even they still though... wear pants and shoes. True. <laughs> okay, but that's something they were raised with. <laughs> so. You know, you you, you, you you're indoctrinated. You're tell me to do you're stuff, indoctrinated. You, <laughs> your society, you're indoctrinated. I mean, I think most people, except for maybe nudist colony people, <laughs> uh, don't think about it twice. I mean, 
I I like having clothes on, except when I sleep. But whatever. But yeah, I I feel more comfortable that way. That's just the way I was raised, and whatever. But and I guess these people. I mean, think about having to have a full head mask on all the time. I mean, you can't itch your nose. You can't. How do you sneeze? Um, how do you cough? You know, the whole thing is like, wow. Right. Uh, th- th- there's a lot of, I mean, cleanliness, hygiene. There's a lot of downsides to this full head mask thing. And um, they did say they take it off to. Yeah, to clean up and stuff. Clean up and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and we take our pants off to take care of stuff. So it's well, we, not like. You know, we bathe or shower or whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. not like. I'm just going to keep equating it to pants. I mean, we we all wear pants. But we do take them off from time to time. Except for those but, that wear kilts. But we're by ourselves. Or dresses. Pants, dress, whatever. Whatever, Ken. We still cover up the we cover, we cover up the naughty bits. <laughs> why, why are they naughty? Because we're told they're naughty. <laughs> but that's my point, is that, uh, you know, with the exception of the nudists and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which, you know, everybody's allowed to believe what they believe, uh, we as a globe all wear pants. And... We take them off from time to time, but usually it's in private, right? Which is the way I was equating the the mask thing. Is right, like, right. They you. did take them you. off from time to time to brush their teeth and wash their hair and pick their nose, whatever they needed to do. Um, <laughs> but they just didn't do it in front of other people. Right. Okay. Except for those. And then, uh, then they talked about the people that took it to the extreme where they put those masks on them as a baby and then mm-hmm. – they never took them off. I know that's ridiculous. It's horrible. It's kind of like the people you. I, I don't remember which, and I don't even know if it's true. But I always heard that there was some, some society, not an Amish society, but some sort of a religion, religion that yeah. kind of went off on their own, and they and they forbade any type of medical intervention or or conjugal relations was oh, also conjugal. So like, yeah, 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 yeah. Except were, to reproduce. No, I mean, no, not even that, not even that. So, yeah, so they died out. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh come on! That's, no, well, like I said, I don't. Know that sounds true, like but I. I always heard that, and I was just like, you know, that doesn't even make sense. And no, then, that doesn't so, make sense. But I mean, but it would be the same thing with these babies, right? Once babies, once the once the old people died, and yeah, there exactly. Were no babies, how could then, that work? Uh, then there would be none of that religion anymore. Exactly. That took it to that ex- that extreme. Exactly. The, the good point. I didn't really take it that far about that they would die out, those extremists. But right. you're right. They would die out. They would die out. <laughs> uh, anyways, all right. You made some good point when I was talking about it on the cover that uh, these masks reminded you of something. Yeah, and I just – I guess you saw my text. Yeah, so, so um, why don't you describe that because that is uh, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the cleavage or what? No, no, no. Just, oh, okay, okay. Go ahead and okay, so... what, you, what you sent me a picture of. <laughs> okay, so when I saw the masks uh, in in this this book, uh, the first thing I thought of was The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which is a, a, a movie I saw when I was much younger, and it had bad guy wore like a mask, uh, a golden mask, and it reminded me a lot of... I mean, I, I think maybe Byrne had... Maybe that movie in the back of his mind when he created them. And then the right. second thing that came to mind was Doctor Doom, of course. 
So, so what I texted you was some photos of some of those things I gathered. So a little bit of Doctor Doom, but a lot more Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Right. So that's one. But then, then the outfits that the the citizens were wearing, um, you you also pointed out that that same outfit was used in other episodes of Star Trek. Well, okay. So my main point with that is. You know, it's really funny where Byrne goes on the cheap in some of his his production. So I think a lot of the ships he does, which we talked about in the last last one, the swarm. You know, it seems like a little clunky, a little like like low res. You know, whatever that he did it, however he did it. But maybe he just didn't want to spend a lot of time on on trying to create something that looks more realistic. But in this in this book. The people on the planet, it seems like the security people, or maybe it isn't just the security people. No, no, I, actually a lot of, I mean, some of the rebels do the same thing. Basically, all Byrne did is he took people and he just kind of like used a magic marker to <laughs> draw clothes on them of different varieties. But I mean, they're all black and, and they kind of look like magic marker time. So um, the guard person or the, the waitress, you called her waitress in the synopsis? That right. brought food food to uh, Kirk and Company, Spock and Company, uh, when they were jailed. I looked at her shape, and she's got a pretty, uh, you know, pretty nice thin shape to her. And she's got a, a, a little little thing covering her chest and neck and stuff, and there ain't much there. And it's like, oh, ah, this looks a lot like a Taz episode. So indeed, I looked up one of my uh, favorite season three Taz episodes, mainly because of this actress, just because of that actress. And uh, she's actually the daughter of a uh, Droxine, the daughter of Plasis, the high advisor. And this is from the Taz episode, The Cloud Minders. So she doesn't have much on. So this looks like a Gene Roddenberry special. And the little the little bits of of like shimmery light blue sky blue fabric that is is covering her breastuses and stuff and not much else um, seems like a, a very similar magic marker outfit that he drew on her. Right. So I think he used uh, Droxine's footage to create the um, the waitress quote wait, waitress whatever. Right. No, I totally agree with you because I mean even her collarbones and stuff look. I mean, they look so much alike that, yep. that her body shape is exactly like that woman's. Right. They just he just painted it black and put a mask on her. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's really ingenious if uh, you think about it. Yeah, it is pretty smart. Uh, and and uh, you know, I. It's funny how I recognize that so quickly. Huh? Go figure. Yeah, I would. One of my. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess she made an impression uh, with me. Um, another thing that was kind of interesting is, um, and I'll, okay, so uh, when Spock was kind of using, when he was using his powers, uh, with uh, his telepathic powers against the uh, the girl, the right. waitress, whatever, and he was kind of like hypnotizing her or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which it was fascinating because uh, when I was looking at it, I didn't think of him having the mask on necessarily, but it kind of had a, a zoom in of Spock's eyes. And the way they did it, they almost made it look like, like old Bella Lugosi, 
when he used to, you know, in 1932 or whatever, uh, Dracula movie, mm-hmm. and there, there, there were a couple of them, when he would use his hypno powers, you know, against women and stuff. Um, right. You know, they, they had a certain lighting that would, like, light up his eyes more than the rest of his face. And then when I saw the Spock thing, they did the same kind of thing. I was thinking, oh, this, he, he's trying to do a Dracula hypno, hypno powers <laughs> or something. And it was like, okay. And then, and then it was only later that I realized, well, the real reason why his eyes are so lit up and the rest of his face isn't is because he's got the mask on. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, what's funny in that picture with the close-up of his eyes, mm-hmm. um, you can see that the uh, reflection in his, in his pupils mm-hmm. are actually the same shape as the, the eye slits. Exactly. So it's like that's, that's the only bit of light that's hitting him. Right. It's, it's actually kind of cool. That is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, he – Byrne does some nice detail. But I was thinking the same thing about it was a very Dracula thing, which I don't remember Spock being able to just, like, Never. look at people and you are going to open the door. Exactly. He never did that before. Yeah. Byrne's pulling it out of his backside. <laughs> but – So – and also in that part – um I mean, we learn a little bit more about their society. Not only do they wear masks, but they also feel like serving food is uh, women's work. Oh, I, yeah. I thought that was a weird. I mean, it's... that's a weird throwaway thing that that's the only time there's any sexism in the whole book, I thought. Yeah, well, it's, it's a very misogynistic society. So, uh, apparently, uh, only women only women are low enough to serve food. Oh, right. men don't serve food. There are no chefs in there on their planet because it's too low. Well, Spock's not even allowed to touch the tray because only women can touch the tray because that's how you serve the food. Exactly. So yeah. it's like okay, so these guys are 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 a holes in multiple ways. Exactly. But I thought it was weird because that's the only time we see any of that. I mean, yeah. the leader of the rebellion is a woman. Yep. So it's yep. Just yep. Like, yeah. Uh, so it's not all. I mean, she, she seems pretty co-equal with the guy. Right. Yeah. And actually, it's her who takes her mask off first, right? Isn't right. she? Yeah. The first one? Yeah. So that, she... that's a lot of courage. Yep. So anyways, I don't know why that, that one scene is in there to show that they're, they're sexist. Uh, yeah, sexist in, in addition to extremists with the mask. Right. Well, they, they want you to dislike. I mean, yeah. Burns' thesis, <laughs> I was looking for that word. Burns thesis are these guys have a lot of issues and they need to change. So they're going to throw misogyny into it. Right. So I mean it, it was it's he's trying to mani- all good writers try to manipulate the reader to go down a certain path. That's obviously what he was focusing on. Right. That was his objective. Right. And but he, and, I, and, I, and it worked on me cuz I thought these guys were a bunch of a-holes. They are a-holes. And they needed but... to change, but but I don't think the Federation should be in- installing their beliefs onto somebody else's, True. right? So I mean, they, they, introduced, they introduced the rebels, and that was when I was like, okay, well, if everybody – if not everybody, you know, if not everybody believes the same thing, then they should have the right to believe what they want to believe, right? Exactly, right. As uh, opposed but to up until some... then, I was just like, ah, I, I think Kirk's wrong. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to get him to change for no right. reason. Or at least badmouthing well, the pilot for, you know, they're calling us vile. He's the one that's wearing a weird mask. I, I, I just didn't like those parts. Yeah. Yeah. 
but anyways, like I said, it got me talking, and I'm talking to you about it. I talked to my wife about it. I mean, yeah, so there you go. <laughs> not too many uh, Star Trek comic books uh, have me talking to other people about. You know that this this is a good analogy to that. You know, there you go. Good. Exactly. So that's that's good. That's as an artist, that's what you should want to do. Right. Elicit. Yeah. Conversation. This I really. You said you like the swarm one better. I think this might be my favorite of all the. All the uh, new visions. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Only because I thought it, you know, I don't necessarily like his message, but uh, all the time. But I mean, but that's how everything is. You're not right. going to agree with everybody all the time. Well, it's a, soci- it, it's, uh, it's a sociological um, reflection in some ways on, on you know, you, uh, how things are here at Earth to some degree. So right. whenever they do parallels like that, it causes you to look at your own situation. So that right. always does make you think more about it, as opposed to oh, a space battle. Anyway, exactly. So, uh, did you read the little um, teaser for the next issue? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, I, at least I don't think I did. It's entitled uh, Sam, and it has uh, oh Kirk, Sam, Kirk with a beard. Oh, with a beard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where's... uh, Okay, so... Okay. So uh, I'm really looking forward to reading that one now. As opposed to Kirk with a... uh, Mustache. With a mustache. (laughs) Anyways. All right. Uh, Anything else for this issue? Oh, wow. Okay, so now... Okay, so I'm finally looking at this for the first time. And Sam actually... This is a lot better. I mean, Sam looks... looks more different. I mean, rather than just putting a mustache, I mean, I think Byrne did more with his face. Right. Well, you think so? I think he did. And, and look, look at his teeth on the bottom. His teeth are kind of crooked and stuff. I, mm. thought, I thought Kirk had, or the Shad has pretty, pretty perfect teeth. Anyway, so, yeah, that's, I'm looking forward to that, too. So, uh, let me, I have, I have just one final thing to say. You were talking, we just mentioned about space battles. Mm-hmm. There is a spot here in the book where nuclear warheads are being shot up at the Enterprise and there's a pretty cool explosion and then and then the, the Enterprise is superimposed on top of it and it looks pretty cool. I, li- I like the shot. Right. Um, but it's like because they're attacking the Enterprise the Enterprise can't drop its shields and beam anybody out. So that, that means the, you know, the landing party's more on their own. Right. So allow me to mention a few things about this whole idea. Yes, it's handy for the story to, you know, you know, the stakes are higher, they're on their own, blah, blah, blah. But really, I mean, come on. So uh, I would not let those things get near the Enterprise. <laughs> I mean, chemical rockets are shooting these missiles up from the planetary surface. These missiles are going fast, but they're also fighting gravity. So really, in the Star Trek universe... They're 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 sitting ducks. Why aren't you just picking them off with phasers, or just or just deflecting them with a, a tractor beam or something, or something like that? Or yeah, yeah. Okay, so I tractor beam. That's another way of doing it. I I had not really thought about tra- tractor beam, but yes, you could do that. You could you could transport them. <laughs> you could dematerialize them and never rematerialize them. You could dematerialize them, and if you for some reason had to rematerialize them. Rematerialize them after they've already passed the Enterprise. You know, there's just so many things they could do other than having the explosion right against these shields. 
Right. And another thing is, are they sending up a steady stream of nuclear missiles that are ex- explosion, explosion, explosion? You know that that means because certainly sensors can see these things coming a mile away. Right. So they're probably not doing that. They probably sent up a few, saying, "Oh, we're 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 technologically advanced. It only take a few." And then it blows up and nothing happens. It's like, oh, I guess we better spe- send, send up some more. And it's like, there's a limited number of intercontinental ballistic missiles you guys got. Right. Um, and the Enterprise can move super fast. So exactly. It's just like, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, all the Enterprise has to do is go to the other side of the planet. Turn on the impulse engines for like half a second, and uh, none of those missiles will be anywhere close to where exactly. they were getting shot at. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, another, another good point. I mean, yeah, you could you could definitely go like over the horizon. I I don't think transporters work through a planet, even though they never talk about this. I don't right. think they ever talk about it. I would think that you've got to have line of sight for transporters to work, as opposed to going you know, like being on the other side of a planet and then beaming being able to go through the planet and beaming somebody off. Right. But um, yeah, just just get kind of away from from these these slowpoke chemical rockets. Right. right. Or just like. Slingshot around the, their moon and then come back and <laughs> pick them up on the way out. You know, on the way out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that didn't make sense. And that was another reason why they were poopheads. Uh, the people, you know, yeah. is they took what I didn't like. You know, Kirk and them would talk about this is weird that they have to wear masks, but they still respected the beliefs and tried to, you know, tried to wear a mask and be respectful. Um. The people themselves, they were like, oh, you're not wearing masks, so we're going to kill you. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that's, uh, that does not uh, help you side with them too terribly much. Nope. Nope. It's like, uh, you shouldn't kill people just because they have a different point of view. Oh, yeah. And these guys are actively sending people to be missionaries to spread their good word to other places, uh, although considering their level of technology, they're really just going to kill all those people <laughs> that they launch off. Right, which I think is what the guy who came out the first time realized, like, oh, shoot, <laughs> it's a lot farther to the next planet than we thought. Right. Don't send anybody else, you know. Right. So. Like I said, I, I thought I was kind of siding with him up until that point when he was just like, I'm going to kill all your all your people because, you know. They don't believe what I believe. Right. Yeah. Which, that's not how you're supposed to do it. Nope. I don't think your great teacher would have approved of that message. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. But yeah, like I said, I, I like this story. Yeah. I, I thought the masks and stuff, you know, obviously looked a little janky? odd. Yeah. Janky was the word I was going to use, but then I was like, is that even a real word? <laughs> it's 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 real slang, right? But yeah, totally. Uh, it it looked like a, a floating CG mask over over a real person's body. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But the, how else would you have done it? Uh, I, I I you know hey, we can criticize Burn all we want, but we couldn't do this. No, and I <laughs> like I said, I still think it looks good, and it it definitely. You know, it tells a story, right? I mean, it looks more realistic than the other comic books we read. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, Kirk from uh, the DC comics does not really look like Kirk. It looks like a a drawing. Yeah. 
Yeah, a drawing um, of somebody other than Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but and then I really liked the uh, the last thing I want to say is uh, I liked the Rocketeer or Doctor Fate helmet, whatever you want to call oh. that one that uh, Kirk printed out for them. Right. I thought that was really cool. I don't really understand why they had that one scene where they were showing that there was little TV cameras inside of it and things like that. But uh, oh, that they could. Well, it, it makes sense that they would do that. I mean, you're building communications into the helmet, which makes a lot. Ex- that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but they don't ever use it again. No, they're, they're like, never able to use it. They explain it, and then it's never used, and they're, they're, it's gone. Yeah, and by but the, it looks cool. I thought it looked cool. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Yeah. No. I, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's uh, why why they don't all have substitutaneous transponders. I do not know because uh, that would make a wanna, lot of sense. I don't want to mark people. That'd be like putting GPS people on. GPS is on our kids. Hey, if I'm I'm going to be beamed down to a planet where I don't know what the hell's going on exactly, (laughs) I think I would like to have a tracker in my body as opposed to, uh, you know, the communicator, which could easily be taken from me. As Um, it is. As it always is. Exactly. No, I agree with you. And the one time that they do have that and they do have the tracker, they don't even use it for its intended purpose. So Patterns of Force was the episode. So that's where they introduced the subsutraneous transponder. Oh, was that a Taz episode? Or a Taz episode? episode. Okay, I didn't know they had it back then. Yeah, they had it back then. And so, but they don't use it to get back to the ship. So they cut it out of their, their arms. Ouch. And then they, and Spock is able to use a metal slat from a cot to take the crystal that's inside of the transponder and create a laser beam to <laughs> to melt the lock on the cage for them to get out through. It's like, what, what episode is that? I, I don't remember that at all. You don't remember this? Uh, yeah, Patterns of Force. It's the Nazi episode. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll so, have to give that another watch, watch. Watch the Nazi episode. It wasn't particularly a good episode, in my opinion. I haven't seen it that often. But, right. yeah, that's subcutaneous. That's where it came from. Hmm. Okay, that's it. I have to say about. Uh, of course, that has nothing to do with this that much. Uh, I, I'm done. I, I've said everything I I, <laughs> I intend to say about this issue. And that's all I have to say about that. X, there you go. Yeah, see, I was a Forrest Gump reference. There you go. All right. So, what are we doing next week, Ken? How about more of the new visions, issue fourteen and fifteen? How about that? Ah, uh, sounds good to me. I, I enjoyed these. Yeah, and we can we can see another spin on Sam. He's dead, right? He died, right? He died. So I, I'm really confused why he's in this next uh, issue. Well, time wise, did it, is it be was it uh, an, uh, Operation Annihilate? Is that the one? I think that was the one where uh, Sam was killed. So maybe it takes place before Operation Annihilate. I don't know. And, but that was a. Season one episode, right? Uh, I think so. It was. I think it was early. Hey, they had a sun creature too, right? Or they didn't like the sun. They didn't like the light. They didn't like the light. So they they, those those were the flying uh, blobs of like rubber, right? (laughs) (laughs) They they would have on strings, and and one of them jumped onto Spock's back. That was funny. Right, Right. It looked yeah cheese. Oh, the cheese was was being cut and spread around on that episode. 
Right. Anyway. So, yeah, looking forward to that one. So we'll do that issue plus uh, I haven't even seen what 15 is, so that'll be something to look forward to. It's called The Traveler. Ooh, The Traveler. That's uh, that's a TNG thing, so what the heck. Well, we'll find out next week. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for joining us this week, and looking forward to seeing you next week. Later. Other review. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.